All right, turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy. We're in chapter 2. This morning we're going to look at verses 8 to 15. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. Uh, let me just remind you really briefly our context. It's an older church planner who's writing uh, a letter to the pastor who took over the church he planted. So Paul had a beautiful relationship with the Ephesian church. He appointed Timothy to be his pastor, the pastor. Now, it's interesting, Timothy wasn't appointed as an apostle. He's not counted as an apostle. He was appointed as the shepherd, as the elder uh, in charge of the church. And so he is writing uh, them concerning the truth. He is writing them concerning how they're going to do worship, who's going to be in charge, how all of that stuff is going to happen. So it's kind of a manual for uh, Church 101. And so last week uh, in chapter, uh, the beginning of chapter 2, he, he talked about the beautiful picture of Jesus Christ being fully man and fully God, and that he is the only mediator between God and man. And then he ended, it was interesting, he ended with this, um, of these things I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and then in your Bibles it'll have it in parentheses, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. So it's as if in the middle of this book, or it could be even this next section, he's saying, uh, I understand, Timothy, that what I'm going to tell you uh, may be hard to receive. I understand, Timothy, that you're in a city um, that has all of these cultural pressures, but what I am telling you, I am not lying. I was appointed by God. I was given this authority. I was given this charge. And I answer to God for how I take this role. And so that's verse 7 of chapter 2. We'll pick up now in verse 8. 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 to 15. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. One of the first things we know about a child before the days of ultrasound is its gender. And I'll never forget December 5th, uh, 1990. Jordan Kuyper, Tammy Kuyper was large and, as they say in the Bible, heavy with child. And all the family was out there. It was the... Uh, uh, in Colorado Springs, Dad was there. I mean, just every, everybody was there. And, and out comes George, Samuel Jordan Kuyper. And the doc says, it's a boy. And I said, yes. Now, I, wanted, I want you to know, if, if they would have said it's a girl, I wouldn't have said, ah, oh, dang. That's not what that meant. 
I've just, we had a baby, and it was a boy. One of the very first things you know about a person. Before that person knows its parents, anything, we know. I'm telling you that because the Bible starts very similarly. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and He saw that it was good. And then God creates everything, and everything He says is good. The only thing that God makes that is not good is man all by himself. And it's really important that we grasp that at the very beginning, before sin had entered the world, before anything had gone wrong, there is one thing that our God says in all of his creation that wasn't good, is that man was alone. No suitable helper was made for him. Man was not made to dwell in a cave with a dog and a really sweet truck and boat. I know, Bo. Sorry, you can do confession next week, too. <laughs> man was, it wasn't good that man was alone. And so the scriptures say he created woman. Scriptures say uh, that man and woman were made in the image of God. There is something about maleness and femaleness that encompasses the image of our God. Um, our God, when he speaks to us, primarily uses the male gender. I am a father to you. But then we are told that as a mother has, uh, as a hen has uh, compassion for her children, so our father gathers his children. There are many aspects that that are motherly that we find in our God. But our God purposed, purposed to make human beings male and female. He didn't need to do it that way. He, he, he didn't need to do that that way. He, he could have made every creature in the whole world one gender. Could have absolutely done that. And so here's the question I want you to think about this week. Why did he make two genders? Why did he do it? Okay, well, if you took the Sunday school class on the five solos and the five points of Calvinism, you'd know that uh, the cop-out answer for every Christian question is soli deo gloria. Why did he do it? For his own glory. Why did God create mankind, male and female? For his own glory. Why does the church have to answer a culture on the exact thing that the culture is pressing against? Because God's truth is what human beings need. It is where healing starts of social, personal. It's where healing starts with the truth of God's word. And something is lost when we say it doesn't matter. There's no difference. It can, you can change it at will. We can create new ones. Something is lost and human beings suffer. And so we make no bones about it in this text when the apostle writes, His context is a church, the gathering of God's people, how they worship, the truth that is shared one to another, and absolutely the necessity of both genders being present in worship, both genders exhibiting His glory and His image. Created in God's image, created male and female, and for His glory. This text before us, this morning I'm going to talk about hermeneutics, hermeneutical principles, 
and it might seem even somewhat boring to you, and why is he doing this? It's because this is one of those texts um, that causes problems in Christians, causes problems in church. And in our society, uh, Tim Keller coined, I think he coined the phrase, defeater beliefs. And he's got a great lecture, you can look it up, he goes over the seven defeater beliefs in our culture. And these defeater beliefs are, are simply stated, if this is true, if we as a culture believe that there, this is true, let's take one defeater belief, that there are many paths to the same God. All right? If we as a culture believe that that is true, then believing that this tr is true means I can't believe Christianity is true. One of the defeater beliefs in our culture is that traditional Orthodox Christianity is misogynistic. It, it is, it is anti-woman. It's an outdated book written by men that hurts women, that doesn't value women. And if that is true, and if we hold that that is true, then I can't believe Christianity. So there's ways that we try to get around that truth. One way is to look at this text and completely contextualize everything out of it. To, to, to go through it, and I've seen it done, and you can read books that done, that basically you get through reading some commentator and you realize, okay, I guess he meant nothing. <laughs> I, I, I guess, I guess and, and one commentator says, you know, the first chapter you see the apostle in his glory and his love for the church, and the second chapter you see him in his fallenness and his disregard for the church. You see him at his best, and you see him at his worst. Um, how we handle this text uh, reflects on how we handle the rest of the Bible. And so the first thing we have to ask ourselves, uh, and, and you may want to write this down, the first thing you ask yourself is, why is this difficult for me? It's the first question. Why is this difficult for me? And, and the reason I want to ask you to, to consider that question first, why is this difficult for me? Um, because there are lots of things that are way more offensive in the Scriptures. Right? that you are so utterly sinful and helpless that no matter how hard you try, you can't make yourself right with God, that God of his own accord, not because he saw anything good that we had done, no, in fact, he saw that we were stubborn, rebellious, stiff-necked. God of his own accord said, I'm, if anyone's going to be saved, I'm going to have to do it. What is more offensive than the fact that Mark Kuyper's sins of pride and ego and loving of money and lust and sloth... Oh, What's more offensive that, that that cost the only perfect man his life in order to make me right? So it's important we ask, why, why does this, why do I find this offensive? You know, in 2003 in the U.S., Massachusetts became the first state to allow same-sex marriage, 2003. You know, in 2008... Uh, California had passed, uh, I forget what proposition it was, but it was one man, one woman law for marriage. And in 2008, it was overturned. All right, so, and it was overturned by a vote of four to three at the California State Supreme Court. You understand what I'm saying there? In California, which most of us might think, Massachusetts, California, you know, maybe that's the most progressive states, as, as little as 14 years ago, Three justices on the California State Supreme Court voted against it? What am I saying here? The culture shift moves. Uh, the, the, the culture and what our culture accepts 
moves. I don't know if those who wrote that proposition uh, were also considering that there may be a time when people want to marry their dog or their horse or their car. I know my son Jordan had a love affair with some big mud tires when he was little and he said he wanted to marry it. Um, but were they thinking along those lines? So it's really, really important for us to realize that. And so hermeneutics tells us what was the intent of the scriptures when it was written to the people it was written. Now we as Americans, we do this with the Constitution, right? The Second Amendment. The Second Amendment is not the right to arm bears, it's the right to bear arms, right? If we swept that around, it gets, we get in trouble, right? Was that 1790? Is that right? You know, Uriah? 1790, 1791, something like that. thought I wrote it down here. Uh, the right for, the, for a uh, citizen to own and bear arms. The right to carry a firearm. Now, people that argue against uh, gun registration, against the freedom to own firearms, says that was our founding fathers. That they, they put it in there because they, wanna, they want the, the citizenry to be able to protect themselves from the government. And, that, and that's, the greatest, that's the greatest threat against the government and tyrants is an armed citizenry. Those who say, no, 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 you can't take it that way. There was no way that those folks in 1791 knew what an AR-13 or an AR-15 or an AR-33 would look like. They didn't know. And so that's hermeneutics. What did they intend? Um, what, what, what did the founding fathers, and it's interesting because we almost treat like the founding fathers like they're the gods of America, right? What did the founding fathers say? And we're about to appoint a new uh, Supreme Court justice, and we're going to ask her all kinds of questions about uh, what's her view of the Constitution. Uh, is she there to change it? Is she there to interpret it? Well, how does she interpret it? Right? That's all hermeneutics. So you wonder, how do we get churches at times that seem to operate completely different, and we have the same Bible? hermeneutics. And so here are the hermeneutical principles that the reformers go by that I believe comes uh, from the way the scriptures are handled, not just by us, but even beforehand by the apostles and by Jesus himself. Um, we ask ourselves, uh, why are we bothered by it? And I say specifically in this text, we ask ourselves, how does society or the current culture that I'm in how does it confer value and worth? How does the culture that we live in, because it's going to be different, it's going to be different in a different culture. Um, and I used to tell you this before. When I was a kid, I'd look at National Geographic and I would see uh, these sub-Sahara Africa, you know, and, and it would be a culture and they would say, this is what women think are beautiful. You ever seen the ones that do those things where they stretch their necks? They put those rings on their heads. Anybody ever seen that? Yeah, I mean, what is that? That's that culture saying, this is what beautiful looks like. You ever seen the ones that have like the, the head down to the bone? Those are the dudes. Like they, they, they cut the skin away and they put this mud and clay, you know, and, and it's... So anyway, every culture has this uh, way of saying, you're a value. You count. You matter. Now, Scripture would say that every culture is actually built around idolatry. Not just a, a form of something, but, but idolatries of the mind and the heart. In America, success, degrees, body image, gender, uh, the car you drive. Uh, how does a culture confer value, 
wealth, um, value, worth. Um, I, I just say, I think in roles, in titles, in abilities, in affirmation, in achievements. Our current culture is, pushes egalitarianism, that there's no difference at all between a, a female and a male. And, and to say that is, is hurtful and it is wrong. Uh, and I think one of the reasons is because we affirm value based on roles, titles, abilities, affirmation, achievements. The gospel gives us something completely different. In every culture, the gospel gives God's people something different. You are valuable because I love you. You matter because I've adopted you. You are my child, whether Greek, Jew, slave, or free. Our God and his gospel confers value and worth through adoption, justification, salvation, and glorification. And so we bring that to the text. Now I tell you, I put the glasses of hermeneutics on when I read the text. And the first thing uh, that my glasses tell me when I put them on, and, and, I, and I want you to know that I have a preconceived idea when I read the Bible. I read it and I believe it's the Word of God. I believe that it has been handed down carefully, that the textual critics can confirm that we probably have better manuscripts than even the Apostle Paul had available to him um, because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, because of the ability to look and say, okay, there's a difference between this one and that one. Well, that happened because over in this area of the world where we found all these scrolls, a scribe had made this mistake. I believe that the original word that was given to us is the word of God. And because I believe that, I believe that it is without error. There's nothing wrong in it. Because I believe it's without error and it's from God himself, uh, I believe that it won't contradict itself. It won't say one thing here and a different thing here. It won't contradict itself. So I put on my glasses and I say, uh, if I am to read and study and understand, I must harmonize it. I must make the, the small fit in light of the whole. I must, it, it must all make sense to me. And if it doesn't, it's me. If I wrestle with it, it's me. And I humble myself and I say, I don't understand this. And, and yet, it's your word. And I receive it and I accept it. Harmony and history would be the second. History, cultures, genres, narratives... Our God has spoken His Word. Every word that's spoken, every word that is written in the Bible, do you realize it was all written in a cultural, historical setting? Right? So when we're reading 1 Timothy, we don't take it in some sense literally and say, if your name is Hymenaeus, I'm sorry, but you're out of here. Right? We, we, we take it culturally. There was a person. Right? There was, an, there was a person named Alexander. And we start, as soon as we, it just automatically happens, we think, who is like that? How is our church like that? How are we similar? How is that church attacked by the culture and the idol worship and the temple of Diana? How does that happen? How is our church currently in our historical cultural setting? How do we face those same trials? So history, I love what John Stott says. He says, it is in fact the glory 
of divine revelation that in order to communicate with his people, God did not shout culture-free maxims at them from a distance. Instead, he stooped to their level, entered their history, assumed their culture, and spoke their language. In the gospel, our God and Savior, fully God, fully man, Jesus Christ, enters a culture, and where the culture is sinful, where the culture is wrong, he goes right through it. Whether he is offending the government, the religious leaders, or his disciples, he lives in a culture and addresses a culture. Um, so how do we make sense? I think the important part is to be able to discern between God's eternal, unchangeable truths and the transient cultural presentation. And therein lies the rub. Therein lies some of the difference. What is God's eternal, unchangeable truth? How in that culture did that eternal, unchangeable truth affect the church? There are three ways we handle this. The first um, could be kind of defined as a intense literalism or kind of the enshrinement of both the unchangeable truths and the cultural presentation. Literalism, it, it, it makes, in a sense, the culture that the scriptures were written, that, that everything that is written in that culture, we, we have to, in, in a sense, recreate the whole cultural milieu of, of that place and do everything the same. And so you'll find, uh, at times, Christian people who, uh, who think maybe we should dress exactly how they dressed at that time. We should use language like they used at that time. Um, uh, and so if, if someone holds to that, then they'll absolutely look at this text and say, hey, Rev, you know, when you prayed this morning, and uh, you forgot to lift your hands up. And the text says, men, you lift your hands up. Holy hands. Um, I remember my brother Jonathan. Those of you who had the pleasure of meeting Jonathan, uh, you could probably see him doing this. As a little kid, he's reading his Bible. He gets to Psalm 24. and says, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Jonathan's reading his Bible, gets up, goes to the bathroom, washes his hands. He's about nine or ten. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I, I, the Bible says I've got to wash my hands. You know? Now, we read that, and we understand, you know, we, we understand that that's not, that's not necessarily just this literal. We talk about, are, you know, are your hands, are they stained with blood? You know, are your hands guilty? Um, so anyway, you enshrine, you enshrine both. And so if we were to take that, then women were not, would not be allowed to wear jewelry, and you would not be allowed to braid your hair. Um, if, if we took the enshrinement of the eternal truth and the cultural presentation. Uh, so that's, that's one way. Um, uh, and, and Jesus is tested in this, in his Gospels. Women caught in adultery. The law says we have to do this, Jesus. Right? The law says in, in the dispensation of, of Israel as a theocracy, this is how it was handled. Jesus, are we supposed to do this this same way? Um, and so Jesus responds differently. Um, Sabbath commands. Uh, he, he responds differently. So uh, the second is to dismiss both. 
We, in a sense, downgrade the internal truths of God to the level of cultural expressions. Neither really end up having any type of authority in our life. Nothing really is eternal. Everything is cultural. And therefore, cultural norms then become the standard. And you think, there's no way that can happen. And I would guess that that's probably the majority view in our country. That the Bible, if it fits, if it makes sense, if it doesn't offend, if it's, then, then, then we accept it. And we present a gospel and a God that is not offensive to anybody, anything, any creed. Um, and, and sometimes even behind that is this, this wrong concept that we have to do our best to make God presentable. We have, we have to make him lovable. And so those texts can't really mean what they meant. Um, so you find sermons that don't come from the Bible and answers that don't come from the Bible. Um, think of it uh, this way. In Ruth chapter 4, uh, Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, wants to marry Ruth. Now, would any of us read the book of Ruth? And if our daughter, uh, her husband died, would any of us tell her to do what Ruth did? Probably not, <laughs> right? We wouldn't say, hey, go sneak into this guy's bedroom. And when he wakes up, he's going to find you there. Yeah, we probably wouldn't say that to our daughters, right? But we also wouldn't say, uh, hey, you want this piece of land? Yeah, I'd like to buy a couple acres on Monkey Island. Well, unfortunately, it means you've got to marry Isaac Sheffield. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, hmm. All right. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll let that kid into our family. And then what does he do? He takes off his sandal, right? They take off their sandal, right? All of it, that, that, that's cultural. By the time we move into the New Testament, we're talking about marriage. It's different. Think about we do a marriage ceremony today, right? There's these universal, unchangeable truths that we try to bring as a Christian. And then there's cultural things, right? Every time I go through a wedding and we're putting it together, I, I ask, are you going to do the unity candle? Because that's in Leviticus. No, it's not in Leviticus. No, we're going to do, uh, my favorite was the, the people that did these rocks, you know, and, um, and I remember the groom at the reception, he's like holding this thing, he goes, yeah, what a great wedding. I got a, I got a whole can of rocks <laughs> uh, or sand. Have you seen that? Well, they pour the sand in together, his sand and her sand, and they swirl it and it becomes mud, you know, and uh, but those are all cultural expressions, right? We're figuring out some way to express that the culture understands. Um, I think I told you, my son Jordan's wedding, uh, we did the candle, right? So Tammy lit a candle, um, and then uh, Jordan's mother-in-law lit a candle, and then they did the unity candle. Like, no, you're not supposed to do that. That's you, that's her, and that's them. Um, but did it mean that they weren't married? Did it mean that? No. It's just some way of expressing it. The third way is the way that the reformers, and I really believe the way the apostles demonstrated the use of God's word, and it is cultural transposition. We discern between God's essential revelation that is changeless and the cultural expression which is changeable. We preserve the former as permanent and universal and transpose the latter into contemporary cultural terms. Not rejecting cultural expressions, but transposing them into relevant application for our day. I think this is what we do naturally. For instance, when Jesus says to his disciples, wash one another's feet, there are churches that do foot washing. And maybe you've had friends that do foot washing. And they do foot washing because Jesus says wash their feet, but also they do it because it has this sense of I am humbling myself and showing love and care to you. But 
We don't all do it that way. Take up your cross and follow me. Now, you've probably seen that street preacher. I know they're in Pensacola. There are probably some in Tulsa that actually have a cross, and they drag it around, and they start preaching to people, and, and, and it's a literal taking of this. Okay, I've got, I'm, I'm supposed to carry a cross around. Um, but we don't take it that way. We think we take up whatever it costs us is our cross. We even use that term, our cross to bear. This is my cross to bear, right? We use that term. We culturally transpose what the scriptures have taught into our own culture, and we apply it as such. Food sacrificed to idols, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8. How are we going to handle this? Corinth, we know that an idol is nothing. We know that food offered to idols is nothing. But, you know what? There's some brothers that if they know you're eating food sacrificed to an idol, if they know that that's what it came from, their faith may be jeopardized. So for the brother who Christ bled for, don't use your freedoms to lead someone else into sin. That's the cultural transposition of an eternal truth. Brings us to our text. And we finally, at 11.02, we get the sermon in the sentence. That's well, already up there. 11.02, sorry about that, folks. But all aspects of our image bearing come into play when we gather for corporate worship. I love David's voice. I love it. I love the twang of David's voice. I love that song we sang that just kind of made you want to tap your foot and clap, right? That first one. I love Maggie's voice. We bring in male, female, in all of its beauty and of all of its splendor. We bring it to our Father who says, I have created you male and female. There is such wonder and glory in femininity. There is such wonder and such glory in masculinity. And so you read in, in Leviticus, it's, it, a man should not dress as a woman. Right? Does, that, does that mean you can't be in a play? We don't think that. We mean it, you don't confuse your gender. You don't downgrade one gender at the cost of the other. We don't elevate one gender. We don't make one serve the other. We bring all of that in. Therefore, both genders in the Sermon on the Sentence are encouraged to be engaged in what pleases the Lord. A woman's beauty, a woman's beautiful voice alongside men, alongside all of nature. How do we do that in this text? Um, and, and I'll be open for conversations about this. Um, and I just I want you to understand that I know this is difficult and it's difficult in our culture. And so the tendency to not address it, to and somehow be ashamed of it, to some, somehow feel like I'm on the defense when I present God's word, even that is wrong. All of God's word is wonderful and it is good for us and it is useful. Men's prayers is what he starts with first. Verse 8. Three aspects to the public prayers of men, and it's why I chose James in the sense of anger. Is the apostle here saying men are the only ones that ever get angry? <laughs> no. And he's, he's saying uh, it's okay for women to be angry, but not men. <laughs> no. In our nature. Men lift up holy hands. Men lead in prayer. The eternal truth, men should pray Publicly, We should lead the church in our prayers publicly. We should lead our family in prayers publicly. 
Do we always raise our hands? No. But how do we culturally transpose that? We take a posture that represents where our heart is. Right? So there are other places. Falling on your knees. Falling on your face. Right? He's not saying you can only do it this way. He's saying the, the posture of your prayer, how you approach the Lord, it is not to be done of anger and quarreling. Now, I know that may seem weird. How would that ever happen? No, but I've absolutely seen it. And I'm careful about our worship, about who leads and how they lead, um, because I think it's the most important thing we do. I think it's the most important thing. This moment together, worshiping our God, is the most important thing. It's the most important thing has been entrusted to me uh, to, to lead it. I, so I don't often have, hey, I'm just going to pass the mic around and you guys pray. You know why? Because I've had some terrible things happen when I've done that. I remember I had one guy in the midst of a hotly debated presidential election. Just, I mean, outright blatantly pray. God, we know this is who you want as president. And um, we know that you've given us, our country is the city that's set on a hill that gives light to the world. And I'm fumbling over myself trying to tackle the guy, you know. Um, and, and, and so prayers have been used that way. I remember talking to men who have had trouble with, with their wives and their spiritual relationship. And I'm like, have you prayed over your wife? Yes. Have you prayed over your wife in the sense where you're telling God everything that she needs to fix? Well, maybe. <laughs> like, hmm quarreling and anger. Uh, so our prayers, what is he saying? Men, when we pray, we lift holy hands to God. We do our pastoral prayer. We do our prayer together. We do it after the assurance of God's grace. We do one at the beginning. God, please, uh, invoking your name, calling upon your name to enter this place in humility and need. We do our pastoral prayer in humility and need. How and what we should pray. Uh, secondly, women's adornment, verses 9 and 10. The eternal truth in this text. Modesty, decency, and propriety. When, when ladies come in to the worship, the corporate worship, their first thought shouldn't be, does this make me look hot? Do I look wealthy in this? Am I showing off what we've made, what I do for a living? That, that, that's what he's saying. That's the cultural, uh, the cultural play out on this is, don't you dare dress like the priestess of Diana, right? So written to Ephesus, the priestess of Diana, they dressed a certain way, very provocative. In fact, you would go to the temple to be provoked towards sexual infidelity. That's what happened. And so he is writing the general theme. Women, when you come into church, there's something about you that men love to look at. Let's be honest about it. Men love to look at it, right? What happens in Genesis? Wow! Good job, God. This is amazing. All these other creatures are pretty awesome, but you outdid yourself here, right? There's something about it. He says, don't use that to harm your brother, to get their minds thinking what they shouldn't be thinking. But you know what? He doesn't say dress ugly. I really believe, and I told Tammy, I said, I don't know if it's going to float or not, but I, I want to think of our worship as being a Christian beauty pageant. The beauty of God's creation, male and female, the beauty of good works and service and kindness and love, um, it, it should show forth the beauty of our God, how we relate, how we love our children, how we love each other, how we love the lonely and the stranger. Uh, so 
women's adornment, eternal truth, modesty, decency, propriety. Don't let a modesty, don't dress immodestly or seductively, don't dress off to show off your affluence. Does this mean that men then can? No. But in the nature of the church there, it was the tendency. And you see that sometimes, even in our society today. When my Uncle Hank comes to visit, we'll see him in March if he's here. He'll most likely wear a suit. And he'll most likely ask me Sunday morning when we're driving here, he'll most likely say, are you going to preach in that? <laughs> Culturally, he says, you know, you're, you're going you're to go lead the King of Kings. And Lord, Lord, is that what you'd wear to meet the president? You know, that's what my dad would say. Culturally, right? This is, this is how you show importance. Mark, you should be wearing a tie and a suit. I came here and I wore a suit once. I don't know if you remember, if Bo remembers. He said, don't do it again. <laughs> I love you, Pastor, but don't do that again. Yes, sir. Uh, thirdly, church authority. Uh, verses 11 to 15. Eternal truths. Let a woman learn quietness and submissiveness. Model Jesus your Savior, who didn't consider the equality with God something to be held on, something to be grasped. As the Son submits to the Father, the Son doesn't say, I'm less than the Father. I'm not as important as the Father. I'm not loved as the Father. But submissiveness, and in our culture, we have to say, what does that mean? In our culture, submissiveness tends to mean you're of lesser value. You're not as smart. You're below. And again, that's why I started with those questions. What is our culture telling us matters? What is our culture telling us? Um, that if something is kept from me, then somehow there's something wrong in me. The eternal truth, and that's why I think it goes back to creation, and he goes back to the fall, but then he leaves us with the beauty of the incarnation. Do you see what he does here? Like, he, he says, uh, here's the truth. Uh, women, you are to be submissive in the church. Not, not everywhere, right? But in the church, in the gathered community of God's people, you're to be submissive. Primarily the teaching is done through men, but not always, right? Elsewhere, women, older women told to teach younger women, right? To teach children. Um, and so... The, the eternal truth is God has said in his church in the marriages uh, women are supposed to be submissive to the man not giving in to societal pressures but we understand that the context in Ephesus and Rome and in Corinth and wherever the churches were planted was different so it, it, it's not just hey I'm going to say this because everybody accepts it no it would have faced tremendous kickback in Ephesus and in Corinth in Ephesus, you, you, you read that the temple was, you know, so much of it was run by the women. And so it would have received a lot of flack, this. But he says there's a created order. Not because she's weaker. The Gospels don't show that. Biblical history doesn't show that. Women are touted for their faith all throughout Scripture. But he says Eve was deceived. But who will we say uh, that our sinful head is, even in our catechism? Adam. What's he saying? I believe he's saying here that the very earliest entering of sin was a failure on Adam's part. It was a failure for him to do what he was supposed to do, to lead how he was supposed to lead. And him giving in when he should have been firm. Him as the one that was given the word and the instruction of God. 
But like I say, I love the way he brings the gospel in at the end. She'll be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness. Now, there's tons of stuff written on this, and I'm not going to go over all of it. But I'll tell you where I have landed. And that is, his intention is, men, your intention is to think more of yourself because I've given you a leadership role in the church. And your sinful temptation will be to abuse it. Your sinful temptation will be to get your identity and worth and value out of that. Whether it's the title or whether it's the way people treat you, beware, men. And do you not realize this? A, you wouldn't be here (laughs) if it wasn't for women. And B, our God brought his Savior, his Son, through a woman. The working together of male and female in the church, in families, in our culture, gives our God the greatest amount of glory. And so we must seek to do it in the ways that are appropriate and put forth in his word. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray for our body. I pray for the upcoming cultural pressures. We're we're really not even sure what they're going to be. Will you help us to be students of your word and to humble ourselves before your word? There are things that each of us find difficult. Some of us might find it super difficult that, that you ask for a tithe. That you, you say you're robbing me if you don't bring me the tithe. Some of us, Father, find the roles in church difficult. Some of us, Father, find the, the idea of a person going to hell forever. It's hard for us, Lord. And so we pray, Lord, you would give us a spirit of submission, but that we would be students of your word. We would read it not just to try and prove a point that we want to be proved, but, Father, we would read it to know more of you and more of us and to think bigger picture of your gospel. Give us the faith and submit to it in all areas, O Father. Will you help us as a church, Lord? More and more it seems that are holding on to these truths and this style of leadership. We fight, it seems, an uphill battle at times, Lord, of just, oh, they're the church that doesn't like women. I've heard it before. They're the church that hates gay people. They're the church. Lord, will you, will you, will you help us in all that is within our power to speak the beauty of your gospel? Before your law came, salvation came. You're the God who rescued people and then sat them down and said, now here's how you are to live. Oh, help us, Father. And may the sacrament for us today be sweet, whether we are tempted towards being arrogant about how you have made and how you have gifted us, or whether we are tempted to think too little of ourselves. May we eat of the bread and drink of the cup and celebrate the wonder that you, Father, gave your son for us, male and female. And he gave his life for us, male and female. And we see the beauty in the care of the women around Jesus when the men were afraid and they gathered and were, were ready to be associated with him. Oh, Father, help us not to compete, but to compliment and to bring your name, honor, and glory in all these things we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen. Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed,
took bread and he broke it. It was the night of Passover. Amazing, all of history came to this point. Everything pointed to Jesus being the bread of life that was depicted in, uh, in Exodus and Numbers. The Lamb of God. And all of that culture pointing to this day. He looked at his disciples like, this is me. What you've been celebrating, what you've been longing for, what you've been singing for, it's me. What has been just a, a, uh, an example, a symbol, is going to be replaced by me, the real thing. In that same manner, he took the cup. And he said to them, this cup, it is the new covenant in my blood. It is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from this, all of you. For as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, we celebrate our Lord's death until he comes again. Brothers and sisters, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been given for us. Hallelujah. 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 These are the gifts of God for the people of God. This table is for those of you who have entrusted your life to Jesus. And you have signified that publicly to the world by being baptized. And that you uh, see this not as another way of saving, but as this wonderful, mysterious food to feed our souls and our hearts, to confirm in us that we belong to Christ, that his body was sufficient, that his blood was sufficient, that we are included in him, not because of our gender or our calling or what we know or how much money we make, or how much money we've given. Uh, there, there is nothing that outshines what Christ has given for us. And so we take it in grateful celebration. Bo, I'm going to ask you to serve with me this morning. Reminder, the bread is all gluten-free. The red is wine and the white is grape juice. When you're ready, come to the Lord's table. Christ's blood for you, Maggie. God bless, sister. Christ's blood given for you, Mom. Putting Christ's blood for you. Charlie, Christ's blood given for you, sister. Katie, Christ's blood shed for you, sister. Okay. All right, Christ's blood given for you, sweetheart. It's blood for you, Jason. God bless you, brother. Jake, Christ's blood shed for you, brother. Donna, Christ's blood given for you. Claire, Christ's blood given for you. And for you, Anna. Probably wouldn't mind having some wine, would you? <laughs> Sam is blood given for you, sister. God bless you. Angie, Christ blood shed on your behalf. And for you, Travis. God bless you, brother. Heather, Christ blood given for you. Yes, ma'am. Kim, Christ blood given for you, sister. God bless you. Lisa, his blood shed for you, sister. And for you, Uriah. God bless you, brother. Heidi, Christ blood given for you, sister. And for you, brother. God bless you. Cole, Christ's blood given for you, my friend. His blood shed for you, Scotty. God bless you. Vanessa, Christ's blood given for you. Blood given for you, partner. God bless you, brother. Christ's body broken for you. Take and eat. 
His blood shed on your behalf. You might trust in Him and trust in His forgiveness. Take and drink. Let's stand and sing. Thank you.